When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thanks for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. Here in London, we're busily programming for 2017, and in particular, really looking forward to one of our autumn events, the cultural combat Ian Fleming versus John le Carre. We've got Anthony Horowitz defending the works of Ian Fleming. We've got actors on stage bringing the fiction to life, including the Harry Potter star Matthew Lewis. That's happening on 29th of November, and you can buy tickets for that event at our website, intelligencesquared.com. Now, here's the podcast. We hope you enjoy it. Tonight, we're going to consider the anatomy of truth, what it is, what it isn't, where it is, who tells it, who doesn't, how it's told. Whatever we may think about truth, the fact that there are 600 of you here to join the conversation tonight says one thing loud and clear, truth matters. To help us consider the subject in depth and breadth, we have a panel representing four different walks of life in which truth certainly matters. Our politician is the Right Honourable Jack Straw, MP of 34 years standing and government minister for 13 of those years. The man actually in the arena, marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, but who spends himself for a worthy cause. Thus said Roosevelt, quoted by Jack at the beginning of his memoirs, public service is a worthy cause indeed, and we have a valiant defender of its truth in Jack. Our journalist is Sir Max Hastings, former editor of The Telegraph, and Evening Standard, reporter for many years and respected historian to boot. Not actually in the arena, but by his own account, a privileged spectator of the divine comedy. Self-knowledge like that betokens honesty, and we look forward to hearing the truth about being a journalist. Our scientist is Lord Winston, internationally known for his work on assisted reproduction, less well-known for his early stage role as Ethiopian, fa Ethiopian fangirl to Jonathan Miller's Cleopatra, a superb communicator of the excitement of science and the curiosity of scientists. Robert does his profession a grand service in making us all so interested in it. Our poet is Wendy Cope. Wendy makes me laugh out loud. Her poetry is simple, direct, cutting, 
powerfully true. What better voice than hers to tell us what truth is in art? Please welcome all our panellists. So, Jack, would you like to come to the lectern? Your context is that most people, 80%, think that politicians lie. You, I think, would maintain you have never lied in your parliamentary career. What, then, is truth to a politician? Uh, thank you. Um, in Cancer Ward, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, If decade after decade the truth cannot be told, each person's mind starts to roam irretrievably. One fellow countryman becomes harder to understand than Martians. Solzhenitsyn was writing about the Soviet Union, about a system which became sustained by deception of its moral purpose, its achievements, and by the self-deception of those in charge. In the end, this system finally imploded under the weight of its own lies. Truth has to be the, at the centre of any political system so that the, the citizen is able to exercise informed choices where they may very well come to different conclusions, but those conclusions will be based upon different interpretations of common perceptions and understandings. But truth, Claire, has many facets. For example, facts, judgments, and feelings. Solzhenitsyn was speaking partly about the continued errors of facts, indeed, of straightforward lies about factory production, crime rates, the integrity of the ballot, almost everything else, which became endemic uh, in the Soviet system. Factual accuracy is a fundamental duty of the politician in a democracy. And within this envelope, the integrity of official statistics is of critical importance, for statistics are the currency of modern political debate. And if this currency is debased, we enter the world of Solzhenitsyn's Martians. For a decade or so after I went into the House of Commons, there were constant arguments about the accuracy of something pretty simple to count, the numbers of people unemployed. Uh, and it was said that the definitions had been changed 18 times, for they were determined by ministers. Today there are still arguments about the weight to be placed on unemployment figures, but remarkably few about the integrity of those data. And that's because the Office of National Statistics, with the UK Statistics Authority behind it, has been put on a wholly independent basis. Equally welcome has been the Office of Budget Responsibility to adjudicate on government's budgetary plans and forecasts. And both these changes have raised the quality of the political discourse. And I can think of no situation where anyone should use statistics which they know or suspect to be unreliable or untrue. But are there circumstances where in public life it is right to withhold the truth or worse, to tell a lie? I think there are. Withholding the truth has to happen in many areas of national security where the mantra of NCND, neither confirm nor deny, is necessary to protect the secret world, which in turn is there to protect us from terrorist outrages 
or other attacks upon national well-being. There are even some, albeit rare circumstances, where a minister may have to tell the opposite of the truth, i.e. to tell a lie, to achieve a greater good. I offer two. One is where someone's life is in imminent danger. The second, to protect the nation's economy from total breakdown. For example, in the era of fixed exchange rates, where a government has already decided to, to devalue. Ministers have to carry on saying they have no intention of devaluing until the very moment they're ready to make that announcement, because otherwise the whole of the nation's reserves will disappear. Devaluation conveniently moves me on from factual accuracy to judgments, and here the world of truth is more opaque. The truth is rarely pure and never simple, wrote Oscar Wilde, and he added modern life would be very tedious if it were. Politicians are no more immune from others, in fact, less immune, I suggest, from slipping into euphemisms, putting the best gloss they can on inconvenient facts. I've been guilty of this myself, but I've quickly found that, as a minister, wherever the truth was going to be difficult, the best policy was to get it all out as quickly as possible. Then there's the issue of feelings and truth. And here I suggest all of us are in a fog. The truth is often a terrible weapon of aggression, wrote Alfred Adler, the Austrian psychiatrist. What we are feeling may be true at the time, but if we were constantly to give vent to those feelings, social intercourse would become nigh impossible. Hypocrisy in such situations, sparing someone else's feelings, may not be such a bad thing. A little disingenuity here and there about what we feel may indeed help the world go round. Truth, of course, runs straight into the issue of trust. Michael Caine, quoting his fa father, once opined, Never trust anyone who wears a beard, a bow tie, two-toned shoes, sandals, or sunglasses. As you see, I'm wearing none of these. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. So, um, Wendy, poet, do you have a question for our politician? I, um, I, th I mean, it seems to me that politicians are often in a position where they can't say what they really think or feel because of collective responsibility, because of party discipline, and so on. And you know, I wonder if this. I mean, it seems extraordinary to me that so few politicians, and present company accepted, of course, but so few politicians actually any good at making speeches, where you think it would be the one thing they would need to be good at. And do you think this is partly because they can't actually be authentic and, and say what they really think often? They have to be careful. Well, Wendy, uh, you do have to be careful, particularly about what you feel about your colleagues. Exactly. Um, I mean, but all, I just suggest uh, um, that everybody else who works, belongs to any institution has to be careful about what they feel about and, and say about their colleagues. I mean, so Max is an editor. Um, and certainly when he was a junior reporter, he wouldn't have... Uh, gone around broadcasting what he felt about uh, his seniors. I have a suspicion that although the dean and, ch uh, and chapter here at the Abbey is full of uh, people who are closer to God than am I, uh, occasionally uh, members of the chapter fall from grace and have strong feelings about their colleagues. And uh, life would be very difficult if they were uh, to 
give vent to those. So we're no different from others. Uh, Robert, do you have a question? Well, I, I just wonder if you're being a little bit disingenuous, Jack. Um, Probably. <laughs> you are, without wishing to be a flatterer, I think are one of the most admirable politicians I know. Ah. But after all, you've had um, intimate knowledge of SIS, GCHQ, well, the, yep. secret the secret services yep. and the intelligence services which affect our nation. Yep. And there are times when, of course, as a politician, you've had to keep secret things which might be very important and be of great interest to the general public. Now, in a sense, keeping things secret is another form of not telling the truth, is it yes. not? Well, no, I, I mean, certainly you cannot tell the whole truth. Yeah, I, as I say, and Claire kindly quoted, uh, I can think of no occasion in my uh, public life where I've, I, I've told a lie. Uh, and I think that actually is true for almost every um, working politician in this country because the penalties for telling lies uh, are that it's the end of your political career. Um, it's not that we're necessarily better than people in other systems, but the checks uh, on us are much tougher from the press, uh, uh, which is not deferential, and neither should it be, and, it, and, it, and also within the House of Commons. Um, on, as it were, the secret state, Robert, um, yes, I, mean, I, was, I was responsible by turns for the security service MI5 and then for... SIS, the MI6, and GCHQ. And so, of course, there's loads, because you're operationally and legally responsible uh, for these services as Secretary of State, um, there's loads that you're doing at the time and also retain, which you can't possibly communicate to others. But that's... Um, you, don't, you don't lie about that. You just have to say, I can't talk about it. Um, and it does lead to uh, curious situations, the most curious of which was... Uh, when um, somebody challenged me to my face uh, about uh, whether there was a wiretap on them. And of course I, can't, I can neither confirm nor deny uh, that there was a wiretap on them, but uh, I almost gave them the wrong answer. <laughs> Max. I'm very glad, Jack, that um, I couldn't agree with you more, that we have to start by recognising that truth is not an absolute. And I'm reminded of that while I've been sitting in this um, sublimely wonderful building, I was trying to remember the name of the Victorian skeptic uh, who suggested that there should be a sign outside every church in the land saying, important if true. <laughs> um, do you not think you're being a little disingenuous in suggesting you said you never told a lie and so on and so forth? But I would suggest that governments, it's part of the business of government to try and conceal as much bad news as you can from the wretched electorate. Well, look, what I'm talking about, I've never told a lie, and I, I distinguished that in, in what I said, uh, Max, was um, telling things, something which is factual, which I know to be untrue. Um, on this issue of bad news, um, there are, of course, Governments try to manage the news. Um, and I mean, there are two views about how you do this. Um, one view is that you have a grid and you manage everything on the grid uh, and you maintain an iron discipline. Uh, and the other is that uh, this bad news will come out anyway. I mean, we just will. This is a democratic society. 
Uh, and if, 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 if there is bad news, it's frankly just better to get it out. Um, and of course I was subject to the grid, and, and I mean certainly uh, when we were planning the next wonderful policy initiative taken by Jay Straw, uh, Minister, whatever, whatever this was, um, uh, I was anxious that I should get a clear run at it without bad news getting in the way. Um, but on, on, I also f uh, felt, um, I mean, leaving aside the stuff which has to stay secret, that it was just uh, better uh, to get things out, say, if, if, if they were bad news, because they would, they would come out. Um, and I learned that as uh, quite an early lesson, because I went with my first 20 months as Home Secretary back in the late 90s. Uh, the Lord was shining upon me, uh, and uh, I had no problems at all. And then uh, everything caught up with me. But could we move from the, from the, the general to from the specific to the general? Yeah. Do you believe that most people in your trade, politicians, feel the same way about well, truth? I, th well, I think they vary. I think we've got, you know, we've got a spectrum, the same as you have in journalism or any other uh, a trade. Um, but this is, and, and there will be people like Philip Hammond who will try and uh, stop. Uh, generals from talking to you um, and I, th I think that's kind of as, as hopeless as if I tried to stop the judges uh, talking uh, to the press uh, when I was Lord Chancellor I mean completely and utterly hopeless um, so, so I, I, my advice to Philip when I see him is, is to forget it because you're just you know you, you might live next door to one of these people anyway <laughs> thank you very much can we give Jack a round of applause for his time in the spotlight Max, would you take the stand, please? <laughs> I, I should say, um, it's quite interesting that we have a poet's corner. We have a, a politician's aisle. Uh, we, have, we have Newton buried here and scientists memorialised all around this corner. But we don't have anything for journalists. Yes. 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 <laughs> well, I think that's absolutely right, because um, journalism always has been, and I always will be, a rather disreputable business. Once when I was somebody who was applying to me for a job, they said, would you call this a gentleman's profession? And I said, absolutely not. It's a trade for cads and bounders. Thank you. <laughs> let, me, let me just put my, the question I've written here, if I may. Uh, it's to the point. Journalists might be said to be the upholders of truth. On behalf of society, journalists seek it out, uncover lies, tell it, the truth, to the rest of us. And yet if I read a story in the newspapers and I know the facts, I invariably find it to be so angled as to be wildly inaccurate and certainly misleading. So what is truth to a journalist? I don't think... I'm always rather wary about um, any journalist uh, making any grand claim and calling ourselves seekers after truth and so on. Um, I do think most of the people, British journalism includes some of the very best and some of the very worst journalists in the world. Um, I've been lucky enough, and I've worked with some of both, but I, the sort of newspapers I've worked on, I have worked on some very good ones. And I was always very sorry when um, uh, Sir Brown Leveson was compiling his report. I was sorry he didn't meet a wonderful man called Don Berry, uh, now in his 70s, but who worked for me for donkey's years and before that on the Sunday Times, who was associate editor. He was a Yorkshireman, and I think he was one of the most honest men I've ever met. And Don would always ask two questions about any story we proposed to run in the Telegraph. Um, is it true? And if the means by which we discovered it uh, were reported in private eye, would we be embarrassed? 
And those are two very good questions. And we always regarded, I think all of us regarded Don as the sort of conscience of the paper. Um, and God, I wish that Leveson, Leveson gave a very vivid account of the worst of British journalism. But I wish that he had met um, some of the really rather admirable people who also work in the trade. But this difficulty, it's a, a very familiar exercise, it's a cliche, that um, if you stage a fake bank robbery and two men run into the bank and come out shooting and take a couple of hostages and so on, and then you ask 20 bystanders to describe what happened, they will all give very different accounts of what happened. Um, what I've always, how I've always described our business uh, of journalism, and I may say I would in many ways extend that to what I do as a historian. We are in the business of attempting to do jigsaw puzzles with a vast number of the pieces missing. And I may say, in a good many cases, with a good many of the pieces willfully concealed by those in positions of power. And when I've had these sort of conversations uh, with politicians or captains of industry, I've said, yes, it's absolutely true that newspapers and television very often get it wrong, and I blush to think how often I've got it wrong. But if those of you who are in positions of power told us the truth more often, we might not get it, uh, get it wrong so often in our newspapers. Now, I don't actually hold it, against, uh, hold it against politicians and those in power that they, at the very least, conceal a great deal from us. That's their job. But the old definition of journalism, the best definition, that um, it's about trying to get into print the things that people in positions of power don't want to get into print is absolutely true. Um, but I think, you, I, again, all the best journalists I've known, although we are by our nature, just as politicians are, cocky by virtue of thinking anybody should want to read our words, I think there is a fundamental humility um, among, again, all the good ones I've known and recognizing the limitations of what we do. Um, we try, um, we often fail, but the only thing I'm absolutely sure of is that if we weren't there, blundering around, groping in the dark um, for the fragments of truth, and they are only fragments of truth that is the most we can ever aspire to get into a newspaper, then if government and uh, public institutions were just left to get on with it without that kind of scrutiny, then I do think uh, we'd be in a worse state. Thank you. Well, if I could bring in Ro uh, Robert at this point, because that's one thing to speak about um, uh, public uh, officers. But it's another thing to speak to perhaps uh, a scientist who will, I mean, we'll talk about it in the context of science in a moment, but who is interested in telling the truth. Um, and for the scientist to find what he has to say, uh, Ms. Lowe, can, can, can I just um, ask you to ask about that, Robert? I'm not quite sure what you wanted to ask, make me to ask. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm just reminded of one of the great journalists who you, of course, will recall, Russell who works during the Crimean War and sends back stories in spite of what Lord Raglan says about the terrible situation in which the British troops find themselves, worse than the French, for example, possibly worse than the Russians. And that causes a huge stink. But there is an issue, of course, for Britain until Palmerston comes along because, of course, is this a threat to national security and how is it handled? And I think... I haven't read Russell's reports recently, but what I remember was that there was, to some degree, a, a degree of exaggeration to get the message across, as there almost always is in good journalism, whether it's scientific journalism or uh, war journalism, whatever it might be. In order to get that message across, you have to grab the attention 
of the readership. I think a degree of passion is there. I mean, for instance, when I read the reports of war correspondents from Syria at the moment, uh, I feel that um, quite a few of them are going way over the top. And in their reports, when they're saying something must be done, they are failing to recognize the enormous difficulties in the path of government about actually identifying exactly what you do. But on the other hand, that passion is absolutely... I mean, I've been part of this myself. You know, when I was young and I was reporting from the Middle East or from Vietnam, how can you possibly see the sort of things you see in war zones without being deeply moved? And I look back, somebody said to me not long ago, would I like my reports from my young days of war correspondent to be republished? And I looked at them and I said, absolutely not. I'm not ashamed of what, I, what we did, but the idea it had any lasting merit, almost everything we wrote was at least 20% over the top because we were so moved by what we were seeing around us. Um, and I would have thought that's inevitable. But the job of, theoretically at least, of editors and of governments back here is to lay off for the, the passion of those reports and try and answer that question more sensibly about, um, what do we, about what can we actually do. I do think it's one of the worst cries of journalists, something must be done. Hmm. Jack? Yeah, Max, um, put to one side the relationship between the newspapers and those in public life, whether it's scientists or or politicians. I mean, speaking for politicians, we have to just put up with the press we get. But, I, but sometimes uh, the lives of people who are not in public life are almost destroyed. Um, and the, the destruction of these lives is justified on the, on the basis that a truth is being told about these people. But I see some of these uh, stories. I'm not talking about criminality. Um, where you, you wonder what kind of moral compass is in the head of the editors and journalists who decide to attack an individual and just undermine their, their lives and then move on to the next. I wonder how you felt about that. Pretty bad is the answer. I, I can't do more than say what I said earlier, that Britain contains some of the best and some of the worst journalists in the world. Um, it is, um, it is an, as revolting a spectacle to those of us in the business as it is to those of you outside it uh, when newspapers, as they all too often do, behave incredibly badly. Um, I do think uh, one thing that always, bother, always bothers me is that uh, the readiness of the public to buy uh, newspapers, the simplest remedy, would be if the public ceased to buy the newspapers which peddle some of this absolute rubbish, not only rubbish, but pernicious rubbish, as you so rightly say. And uh, furthermore, I, I, I fervently hope uh, that those involved uh, in criminal activity in recent years, um, I think it's most unfortunate the police didn't uncover their doings years ago, and I hope they receive long terms of imprisonment. But, but, but Max, just on this, I mean, you're absolutely, I th thank you for that, but... Um, on this issue, will the public carry on buying them? I mean, the truth is that if we still had uh, capital punishment, uh, you get big audiences for public executions. Um, but I don't think you could justify a policy decision in favour of public executions on the grounds that some people would turn up. Okay? I, I'm the first to say, but again, you know, you and I would be in the same position about this, that I can say that there is a whole spectrum, of the whole one end of the spectrum of British journalism for which there is no defence whatsoever other than it is profitable to those who run it. But in the same way, there is um, a chunk of your trade too, oh, yeah. um, which I think you might also struggle to defend on the same terms. So are you I, saying I, that attack on character is never good journalism? 
unless it is relevant to the story, there can be no case at all for um, simply destroying somebody's, uh, somebody's character unless it is... It, you, you can, obviously, you can make a case that uh, if they're involved in a story and that they, they If they're... I think, I think the distinction Jack has made is absolutely right between the way that you must expect to treat public figures and the way you, you treat private ones. So let's give Max a round of applause. Robert, would you like to take the stand? <laughs> to the rest of us, you are in a godlike position because your truth, empirically verifiable truth, is to our enlightenment minds authoritatively true. You can show us the evidence for your assertions and we will believe you. Is that what doing science feels like? Gloriously true? never heard such rubbish. <laughs> the greatest playwright of the 20th century, the greatest European playwright of the 20th century, in my view, was Luigi Perandello. And in, say, Personaggi in Churchill Dottori, in six characters in search of an author, his leading character says, my drama lies entirely in this one thing, in my being conscious that each one of us believes himself to be a single person. But it's not true. We are many people, many people according to the possibilities of being that are within us. So with one person, we're one person, and with others, we're somebody different, and all the time, we are under the illusion of being one and the same person with everybody. Now you see my tragedy, he goes on, because he's been caught in a brothel with his stepdaughter. Now, that may be a literary illusion, but actually it's a scientific illusion as well. And it leads, I hope, perhaps neatly to the idea of the poetry of science, which is why I quote it. What's interesting is that again and again when you look at science, for example, this extraordinary thing, the, the golden ratio, which of course occurs in every art form that we know, but also in nature, the Fibonacci pattern, you see it reflected in an extraordinary way. If you listen to uh, Reflet Don Lowe by Debussy, you hear the notation of that extraordinary reflection in the water, which is the ratio of 1 to 1, 1 1.6, and so on, up the scale and then down the scale again. And the question is really, is that by accident or is that by design? And certainly, perhaps in Bartok's case, it may be by design, but it's quite probable that in Debussy's case, it's not by design. It happens. And we see that again and again because our perception is essentially built into us in a way which actually changes our view of what is true. I've just been looking at the most amazing JNW Turner in Scotland yesterday, which is an extraordinary view of a harbour. It's a really fine painting. It knocks the socks of all other paintings in that part of the gallery. And the thing about the painting is that people complained about it because it was unfinished. It didn't represent what was seen as the truth. And yet, that painting is more truthful in many ways than all the other very accurate paintings around. So where does that get us? In the late 17th century, in about 1690, Nicholas Hartzerker, a Dutchman, drew what he thought he saw under the microscope. He'd visited He'd visited Van Leeuwenhoek, the great microscopist in Amsterdam, and he rather 
with some temerity and rather foolishly against advice, examined a droplet of his own semen under the microscope. He'd been told not to because it was reprehensible. He was only 19 and what he saw was wriggling creatures under the microscope which made him feel that he had some kind of terrible disease and for the next two years he didn't use the microscope again. <laughs> but when he finally published his essay on optics, he drew what he thought he saw down the microscope, a sperm with a complete homunculus in the center of the sperm, an absolutely perfectly made man with a fontanelle, with fingers, with toes, with legs, with testicles. Indeed, von Leibniz, the great mathematician who certainly was involved with the truth, said of this drawing down the microscope that if it had testicles, then inside those testicles would be little sperm, and inside those sperm would be little men again with testicles, half of them, and that would go right back to the beginning of creation because there was a blurring between the science and the poetry and the religious view. And that is something which I think is really important for us to accept. I don't believe there is any such thing as the truth. When, and may I quote some poetry because perhaps in its uh, original language it might be better. Ki erei shomecho esvasecho because it sounds better in the Hebrew than it does in the English. It's Psalm 8. When I look at the heavens, or when I perceive the heavens, I see the work of your fingers. And of course, that's the issue for us, because at every stage of science, we, I think, are dealing with uncertainty. That's why we do science. Just in the same way as people who are in prayer, or who are religious, or who are spiritual, but not necessarily religious, are seeking for that uncertainty to try and make things more certain. And the interesting thing is that that uncertainty is as important to our spirituality and our humanity as it is to the scientist. And incidentally, I would argue, ladies and gentlemen, that science and religion are actually at their most dangerous when they are certain. And interestingly, I think that is a problem for me at the moment because my good friend and colleague, Richard Dawkins, argues that science is the truth. I have a problem with that because I'm doing an experiment at the moment which was first accepted in Nature some 10 years ago. We withdrew the paper when it was after it had been accepted because my colleague and I were not convinced that the data we had were right. It involved an experiment which had been repeated earlier but had never been managed again successfully, again and again, a very important experiment in genetics. We've now had that paper finally accepted again in a different journal after much more experiments, 13 years after the initial experiment was done. And my colleague yesterday withdrew the paper because she wants to do more experiments. I don't think, ladies and gentlemen, there is anything that we can really say is completely truthful. And perhaps that lack of truth is something which is really valuable in our society, both in science and indeed in our humanity. Wendy, would you like to start? Yes, I wanted to ask you how important it is for scientists to be good at writing in order to put over what they've learned as accurately and comprehensively as possible. 
Well, Max said it. Max talked about the passion of the journalist. The passion of the journalist is the same as the passion of the scientist and indeed the passion of a good politician. I think it's essential, of course. Um, sadly, of course, many passionate people may be very good at the passion but not so good at the communication. Yeah. Uh, Robert, you said towards the end of um, your wonderful five minutes opening address that there was nothing in your, your view that was completely truthful or worse to that effect but does it are you therefore saying that there is nothing which is completely untruthful how interesting <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure I'm competent to answer that question there's nothing that is not untruthful well I think it does come back to this notion of perception, doesn't it? I mean, I think truth is part of that uh, perception that we have. For example, we know, um, I, I'm wondering a little bit with your question, because I think it's a very difficult one to answer, but um, I, I mean, I think many scientists will disagree with me. that there is a, They will say there is something which is provable, there's an experiment, you can do it, and that's it. But to my mind, that may be a truth, but it's a half-truth. It's not the whole story. And I think that that blurring is actually always there in science. And the problem we have as scientists, actually come back to the untruthful part, is that when we gaze down the microscope, for example, I've looked at a stem cell derived from an embryo and seen it beating under the microscope because we've transformed it into a heart cell, which might treat one-third of this audience in maybe 10 years' time if they have heart disease. That notion of absolute wonderment when you've done that, that notion of achievement becomes something which is glorious but also shocking because, of course, it is seductive and you run the risk, of course, of feeling much more important and much more powerful than you really are. Thank you very much. I think we're going to move on to Wendy now. your poem, Present, you wrote, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Nana, it's just what I wanted. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges, big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash intelligence. Is the truth of poetry the deepest truth of all? I really don't know if it's the deepest truth of all or quite what we mean by deep truth. But I do think that truth is very important in poetry. But the kind of truth that's very important is about the poet being honest with herself or himself. T.S. Eliot said, One of the great permanent causes of error in writing poetry is the difficulty of distinguishing between what one really feels and what one would like to feel. Now, I find when I'm writing a poem that if it doesn't work, and I say this to students all the time, if the poem doesn't work, um, the question to ask yourself is, how honest am I being? And this applies, I mean, not just if you're writing about your own life, but if you're writing about a tree, that if the feeling in the poet, poem is falsified, exaggerated, prettified, takes on the voice of some borrowed authority, the poem won't work. I was telling Claire um, before this about a friend of mine who was in a rather unsatisfactory love affair and kept trying to write poems about how great it was. And, of course, they just wouldn't work. And they wouldn't work because it wasn't great. And I know sometimes when I'm writing, I do sometimes find myself writing things that I would actually prefer not to have recognised. But I think when I'm writing a poem, I'm looking for the truth. Um, Les Murray, great Australian poet Les Murray, quote, he quoted in a poem, he quotes Huckleberry Finn, you can't pray a lie, said Huckleberry Finn. You can't poe one either. And I think that's right. Um, the poem won't work if, um, if you're not being honest. Um, of course, being honest with ourselves is, is not easy. Um, and we vary in the degree of ability we have to be honest with ourselves. But I do think that um, being in touch with your feelings and trying hard to be honest about them is, is something that's very important in, in poetry. Is that, I haven't really got a lot, lot more speech to make. I could read that poem of mine. I'd love, that would be lovely. OK, this is a poem um, where... This is about a romantic meeting. And... Um, when I, my first drafts of this poem didn't work at all. And I, the thing was that during this romantic meeting, something unromantic had occurred. And when I put the unromantic thing in the poem as well, I thought it worked much better. My love got in the car and sat on my banana, my unobserved banana and my organic crisps. We spoke of life and love, his rump on my banana, my hidden soft banana and my forgotten crisps. 
He kissed me more than once as he sat on that banana, (laughs) that newly squashed banana and those endangered crisps. We looked up at the stars. Beneath him, my banana, my saved-from-lunch banana and my delicious crisps. At last, I dropped him off and noticed the banana, alas, a ruined banana and sadly damaged crisps. You'd think he would have felt a fairly large banana. And if not the banana, the lumpy bag of crisps. But he's the kind of man who'll sit on a banana for hours, watch your banana and guard your bag of crisps. He waved goodbye and smiled, benign as a banana. I love you, daft banana, said I, and ate the crisps. Can I read this other poem? Have I got time to read this other poem we discussed? This is because this is, as I was following a scientist, um, I thought that this this um, might be interesting. Now, this was actually inspired by a story in the Daily Telegraph. Um, They'd been talking to a scientific researcher and um, about some some research they were going to do on people's responses to birdsong. And it said, A great deal of anecdotal evidence suggests suggests that we respond positively to birdsong. And I thought, yeah, right. And the poem is called Evidence. Centuries of English verse suggest the self-same thing. A negative response is rare when birds are heard to sing. What's the use of poetry, they ask? Well, here's a start. It's anecdotal evidence about the human heart. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Jack, would you like to ask a question? Wendy, uh, you you spoke about poets trying to get at the truth, and you uh, mentioned uh, some instruction, illumination, that uh, T.S. Eliot uh, had offered. Uh, Eliot, in... um, one of the, the opening part of Burnt Norton, um, also said, uh, go, 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 said the bird, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Yes. And do you agree with Eliot there? Uh, and if that is the case, doesn't it mean great difficulties for poets well, when it comes to truth-telling? I think um, one of the things poetry does is, is help us come to terms with the grim realities of human existence. An awful lot of poems are about death, It has been said that death is the only subject for poetry. It's been said that love and death are the only two subjects for poetry. Um, But I think writing poems can be painful. And that one of the things um, that, I mean, if I think, you know, when there's strong emotion, I know there's likely to be a poem there. But I think also I'm very grateful to the poets who have, could have gone into their pain um, about, well, often about death, but, and, about the nature of human existence and have somehow brought it to order for us. And I think, I mean, someone said about Larkin, he faces the worst on our behalf and brings it to order. Um, and I, th- I mean, I think Houseman, you know, Houseman with his miserable poems that make me cry, but somehow he brings it to order, he puts it in a shape, it kind of helps. Max. Going back to your first remarks, Wendy, do you think we could say that while there are sometimes arguments for not telling the truth or even sometimes for lying to others 
um, the absolute crime is not to attempt to tell the truth to oneself. Yes, absolutely. And the thing about, you know, of course there are problems to do with hurting people and so on. You don't have to, I don't publish everything I write. I mean, the important thing is to be honest in the poem. And then the question of whether it's going to see the light of day comes later. But um, I think, you know, you don't hold back for fear of hurting your mother. You just don't publish the poem while your mother's still alive. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. You can come and sit down, yes. And um, let's see if there are questions from the audience. All right, so now we can open the floor out to questions to all of our speakers. Um, I think it's true to say that we've got, we've got four very different accounts and uh, uh, pe uh, people here. And uh, it will be interesting if it's possible to think of questions. It's a challenge which all of the, our speakers could answer um, or more than one of our speakers could answer. Um, I did have a question for Robert Winston, but I suppose it can be general as well was that you made the statement that um, there's nothing is completely true. And, and I was wondering if that statement was based on just empirically based truths, or was that general truths? Because I'd be interested to know if you believe that there can be truths that aren't based on empirical evidence, but on reason and logic and um, morality alone. Well, in order to make a debating point, I do tend to exaggerate somewhat. <laughs> um, but I think so much of the time... We claim things which are true, which, uh, you know, which affect our lives. I mean, for example, during the embryology bill and the embryology issue, there was a general feeling about people who were not very keen on embryology that life began at fertilization. That was a widely held view, widely stated. The problem is that Kono comes along in Japan, takes a mammalian egg and pricks it, simply pricks it, with a pin to activate it, and it ends up as a mouse which implants in the mother's uterus and, in fact, is born and is a normal mouse. But, of course, you could argue that it's a figment of imagination because it was not ever a mouse that saw a sperm. And so, of course, what happens in science again and again, as did with heart circa, new things come along. We have to change our views of our ethics and our society. With heart circa, we learnt, for example, that there isn't a little man in the sperm, eventually, when we have better microscopes. And when we understood that, then, of course, the loss of seed or the destruction of the semen was not seen like murder any longer. But don't we all abuse the word um, truth constantly? Truth is very often used to mean what we ourselves happen to choose to believe. And even if those words in the American Constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, an awful lot of people would not necessarily regard this as objective truth. They were statements of opinion by the drafters. And again and again, our everyday lives, and as soon as you hear, um, dare I say, either a politician or a journalist say, to speak frankly, you know perfectly well they're going to do nothing of the sort. Um, so the word truth and what is truth, we have to be very cautious about, uh, about uh, that definition, don't we, in all walks of life, Robert? Hmm? Yeah, I will answer. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, yes, over, uh, over here, and then this chap here. Hi, um, I do have a question for the four of you. Um, I want to expand on what Mr. Straw said as an example at the beginning. Um, on the economic implications by 
actually telling the truth on fixed interest rates. I would like to expand, for instance, on someone not telling the truth about someone really being obese and not telling them because they're fat only because they want to be sympathetic or perhaps telling someone who is dying that they're going to heaven because they, they want to console the person. And that goes back to what um, Wendy um, stated as well, saying they want, they want to hear sometimes what they want to, to really believe in hearing. And wouldn't that still be unethical going to uh, Mr. Hastings and uh, Professor Winston that even, even though they, are, they, they, are, they might be some positive in that, it's still unethical. And on the, other, on the other side, wouldn't the truth be, in a sense, creating skepticism and creating uh, creativity in seeking, in ways of seeking truth as per your professions? Who wants to start? Thank well, you. I mean, Thank you. Thank you very much. Do you, do you want me to start? Yeah. Well, look, yeah. I, I'm glad you, you, you raised this because your question, sir, illustrated the the differentiation that I was trying to get across between uh, factual statements, which are reasonably certain. I mean, we have shared uh, uh, assumptions about how arithmetic works, for example, which I think are unlikely to be seriously challenged in the lifetime of anybody here. And anyway, they provide a, some handholds for uh, our life. Um, so sort of, I say, factual statements, judgments... Uh, where you may have to lie about a judgment you have formed, for, for example, over whether to devalue until the moment you come to announce that, because the consequences are much worse. And feelings. And um, I've made no judgments about people's relative weight uh, in the audience here, but if I were to stand at the door as people are going out and say, well, I'm not shaking hands with you because you're fat... Um, I, th I think people would think I was a really odd bloke uh, and that I was being offensive. Uh, and that's a, a very good example of where you, or I suggest none of us, um, should say what we may feel because it is gratuitous to say it uh, and it's offensive to people's feelings and produces uh, no um, sort of social product at all. I, I, I think you raise um, a very important ethical point which we haven't covered in our debate. Um, I am medically qualified, so as a doctor, there is now a requirement almost written in how the health service runs um, to tell the truth. And indeed, telling the truth to a patient is part of respecting that person's autonomy which is one of the key of the four ethical principles for a patient. Respect their autonomy, do no harm, try to do good, and try to arrive at a just solution for their medical problem. I must tell you that I have lied to patients again and again, and if I was in active practice, I would still lie to patients. There are times, actually, when it might seem very wrong to be paternalistic, but I don't think it necessarily is wrong, I think sometimes the truth is not something that one should be telling people. And I would refer you to one thing that happened in my early career when a man with lung cancer 
in his bed at home when I was doing a GP locum in Southend was dying of lung cancer and he asked me if he was dying and I said no he wasn't dying and I don't regret that when did you want to follow Jim um, I've noticed that people with cancer often die a bit sooner than their doctors told them they would and I think this is the doctor being kind so as not to frighten them it seems to me there's no harm in that at all well of course you know each individual there will be many most patients who are dying will need to be told that they're dying so they can compare, prepare in the proper way for death. Yes. But there will be other people who may not be, it may not be appropriate. Yeah. Um, I made a television program 15 years ago about Herbie, a German living in Ireland, who had an advancing tumour in his abdomen. And that, um, that film, which took up a whole program of over an hour uh, showed very clearly uh, that again there's a blurring of the truth of what actually was happening to him and I think that in the end that man had a very satisfactory and happy conclusion to a very difficult problem. Wendy, do you want um, to add? You, uh, you, you did mention the question of, 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 of well, telling people they're going to heaven when they die, as a kind of white lie. Yeah. And I mean, what I think about that is that if, if someone believes they're going to heaven when they die, I never would try to, I would never try to argue them out of that, although I don't believe it myself. Um, because I think it makes, I mean, my husband believes it, and I'm really glad, because if I'm with him when he dies, it will make it so much easier. And the fact is that if someone believes they're going to heaven when they die, they're never going to find out they were wrong. So in that sense, perhaps they do, just by dying in that belief, they do. But if I were to try and write a poem about, you know, saying I believed in it, it, would, it wouldn't work. But... There's somebody who's been waiting very patiently to speak. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you. Um, you're all in positions of authority in your different professions. Um, and I was just wondering, with the age of information, the internet, um, and sort of so much free-flowing um, information, um, do you find that your authority as truth-seekers is, or truth-tellers is diminished in any way? I think one of the most depressing things about the internet is um, if you think that newspapers contain many things that aren't true, in which you're right, the internet contains far, far more. And one of the most depressing experiences, somebody once said to me, have you looked up your own Wikipedia entry? And I did, I was absolutely stunned. Half the things in it aren't true. Um, I tried to contact Wikipedia and I said, but a lot of this isn't true. They said, sorry, this is how we do things. And the internet, it is a huge problem that whatever the limitations of what we'll call the conventional media, um, there is a huge amount of information out there, but there is also a huge amount of stuff that is inimical to truth. And there's an awful lot of terrible poetry, but I don't know... <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I've got any authority, and I don't know if it's undermined by that. M my problem with the Internet is my poems being pirated and reproduced on the Internet, and so people don't need to buy my books because it's all there free on the Internet. And I wish I hadn't told this big room full of people that. Not loud. <laughs> I have no doubt that the internet is one of the ten great inventions of the last 50 years because it's liberating, it democratizes what we do and it is a threat as well and we have to, as with all technologies, as I said before there's a downside and an advantage the advantage outweighs the downside 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I think it's a fantastic... Uh, as, I mean, this is hardly original, but uh, as important as the invention of printing. It's changed how people relate to those quotes in authority. It's made the world flatter. Uh, it's accelerated the loss of deference. But in, I think it's also very paradoxical because... And there's a clue in what Wendy just said, that there's bad poetry and good poetry. I think it's also made people... Um, much more anxious to find those they can trust. And, and if you look, think in the commercial world, um, the internet, in a strange kind of inchoate way, has made branding even more important. Because uh, people, there's a limited number of, of institutions which people can, can trust, commercial institutions, which are called brands. And the same is true, uh, I think, in other walks of life, including the media and including... Uh, in politics. So uh, you know, do I wake up in the morning thinking the internet has undermined the uh, authority uh, which uh, politicians uh, deserve? No, I don't in the least. Um, and I think... Uh, and it's not abolished deference either or respect. It's just changed uh, the, the way those operate. Thank you. Well, well I'm in a moment, I'm just going to ask um, each of our speakers to leave you with one thought, one lasting thought, which you can chew over as you make your way home. Uh, but before I do, I'd just like to thank Intelligence Squared for uh, the opportunity to work with them and, for, um, to, and to thank you for being such a fantastic audience. And to those of you who are brave enough to ask questions in this big echoey space to this big audience, uh, thank you very much. Thank you for coming and thank you, Intelligence Squared. Well, the best thing I can think of is this is my favourite quotation about being an artist, and it's by the composer Schubert. I give to the world what I have in my heart, and that is the end of it. Mm. <laughs> oh, you want me to say something profound? Sorry. <laughs> um, something else profound. Um... Gosh, uh, well, I'm just reminded, I don't know why this comes to mind, that, that um, constructivist film, The Golem, do you remember, in the 1920s, um, where the rabbi creates this monster which um, walks around and is threatening to humans. Uh, this, this, uh, a bit like a Frankenstein monster, but it's a peaceful monster. And on his forehead is written in that film, a German film, um, Emmet, the truth. And when the truth is ripped off, the monster dies. Max. We should aspire to tell as much truth as we can without hurting others. Jack. Um, yeah, here's, profound or not, uh, politicians are human beings. <laughs> 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 well, thank you very much to our panellists. It's been an absolutely marvellous discussion. Jack, Max, Robert and Wendy, thank you very much. <laughs>